One year, I kind of got an idea, you know, I want to try trap. I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back in the first shed, this is the Trapping Today podcast. Jeremiah Wood, great to be here. Thank you for listening in. We're brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K A A T Z. BROS.com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cotsboros are a trapping supply company out of Savannah, Illinois. You can get your baits and lures, books, DVDs, and all the trapping equipment you need to get out on the trap line. Brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. Fur Harvesters is run by trappers for trappers. This fur market is going to turn around at some point. And uh, they are the last wild fur auction house left standing, so they are going to be the ones uh, uh, people have to go to to get to get fur. Um, we, ha- as trappers, have a unique product in wild fur, and we need to uh, to market it as such. We are also brought to you by OnX Maps. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS. You can get aerial imagery, track your uh, your movements. You can look at landowner information, see whose land you're trapping or hunting or fishing on, and uh, mark trap locations. Uh, This app is really cool, really unique, and uh, incredibly useful for about 30 bucks a year. And if you go to onxmaps.com and use the promo code TRAP, T-R-A-P, you'll get 20% off. So uh, check that out, and uh, I would appreciate it because it's a, a good way to help support trapping today. Um, but also you're, you're going to be just like me. You're going to buy that and you'll find that you use it so much for more than just trapping that, uh, it's just a no brainer when it comes to renew your, your subscription and, and buck up uh, another 30 bucks. It's going to be no question, um, whatsoever. To me, I get so much more than $30 worth of value out of that subscription. Uh, so that's Onyx. Thanks. Uh, thanks Onyx, uh, fur harvesters and Cotsbros. I do want to, uh, give you a little bit of an update from Cots Bros. You have a chance to uh, get some trapping supplies for a really good deal. Um, if you are not signed up for Cots Brothers newsletter, you need to get over to CotsBros.com and sign up for that because every once in a while you'll get a, an email from Kyle or Kellen that is going to give you a pretty sweet deal, but you gotta you got to be on the list because you got to be able to figure out what the promo code is. Now, I'm going to give you the code tonight. And uh, it would be awesome if you take advantage of this. And uh, when you check out, just shoot a little message there. There's a, there's a spot you can shoot a message to say, hey, uh, got the promo code from Jeremiah. If, you, if you're not already on the, uh, on the email list, at least they'll, they'll kind of give them an idea of where, where they're getting the code from. But uh, anyway, I, th- I figured they wouldn't mind me sharing this. Um, they, they did a, a special deal a week or so ago, um, maybe two weeks ago, of 25% off books and DVDs. And uh, that has been extended to the end of April. Um, use the code stay safe at checkout, S-T-A-Y-S-A-F-E. Any Cotsbro's books and DVDs, 25% off. Um, so it's a good chance to, uh, to get caught up. Look, uh, if you're social distancing, you're sitting at home quarantined, uh, with all this coronavirus stuff going on, it's it's a great chance to catch up on reading. Um, 
Also, they just, uh, in, in this most recent newsletter, um, says uh, we're keeping the 25% off books and DVDs. Since we've been at our current Savannah location for 13 years, April 2007 is when they set up there, we're also going with a mega 13% off site-wide sale until April 30th with the discount code 13. you got to spell that out, T-H-I-R-T-E-E-N. Um, that applies for everything on the site except for traps. Um, so anything except for traps, you you can get that 13% off. Um, if your order has books uh, and DVDs as well as other su- supplies, um, you you have to enter both codes. So the Stay Safe will give you the 20% off books and DVDs, and the 13 will give you the, the 13% off everything else. So if you're like me, I keep a list of... Uh, sort of a running list of things I think about when I'm trapping that I, I need. Um, right now, I want to get an extra J-hook, set of J-hook pliers, a Ron's J-hook tool, because that is really useful, and if I lose mine, I'm going to be in trouble. Um, I need a skinning apron for beaver. Uh, a few, few other things that, that have come up that I, I want to grab. And it's like, okay, I just I got one or two things here. I don't really need anything else, so I just put them down on a list. And when my list gets big enough to where it's worth making an order, then I'll go ahead and place an order. So I'm going to go ahead and grab some things uh, off the Cotsboro's website and and use that discount code. and um, Just a, a great chance. And hey, if you got your Trump check, um, I'm, I'm not really uh, too excited about spending that money right off. But boy, what a great time to invest in trapping supplies, huh? Um, Mine Wednesday, a lot of people mine mine got deposited in in the uh, in the account in the checking account on Wednesday. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you uh, also had that uh, that check show up. So um, hey, if you need trapping supplies, this is a great time to get them. Um, get ready for next season. Um, it gives you an opportunity to take advantage of the summertime uh, to to take care of your traps and and boil dial dye wax whatever you're gonna do. Um, it a lot of times you can take advantage of, of deals uh, for various supplies uh, this time of year. The supply companies are not as busy. They usually are not out of stock on a lot of items because uh, they're all stocked up. Um, or as opposed to, you know, you wait till a week or two before the season and uh, ev- everything can get low, low on stock and you can have issues getting things at times. So... Um, anyway, check them out and uh, get going for trapping. So I don't know how many of you guys are still trapping. Probably not very many unless you are in a northern state. It is the 18th of April and we have the good fortune of having a very long beaver season here in northern Maine. Uh, I uh, We can trap until the end of the month up here. And so I, I did uh, set some traps out. Boy, today was such a beautiful day. This was... Um, I've got. I'm looking out at snow on the ground. Probably half the ground is covered in snow uh, up here in northern Maine right now, but it's it's going. It's going pretty slowly. The weather's been pretty cold, but when the sun pops out, it it is really strong this time of year. Um, I actually just watched a couple turkeys walk across the snow, and they're roosting in a tree right now. The sun has just set, and uh, they're. I'm watching oh five or six of them roosted up in a tree. So it's that time of year. Everything's kind of getting going and moving around. Um, it was one of those days today where full sun, not too much wind, and just beautiful 50 degrees. And it's like you can't not be outside on days like like that. You know, there's we only get I don't know we might get 10 or 20 days like that a year that are just you know the most beautiful days of the year. You you got to take advantage of them. So this morning, you know, it was about 15 degrees. It got pretty cold overnight. <clears throat> Firm things up and, and uh, gives you a chance to kind of get around on frozen ground, do things that you got to do without making a, a big mess in the mud. And then later on in the day, things are melting and everything's kind of trickling off real slow. Um, but, but yeah, I did uh, go ahead and set some traps. You know, a couple weeks ago, I pulled my under ice beaver trap line before we get a bunch of rain and warm weather that kind of thawed things out and you know we still have quite a bit of ice in places but it just wasn't safe for traveling you know consistently uh, and getting out to to most of the beaver lodges so um, I pulled that I, I had a good time I caught caught a few beavers uh, most most of the catches were on snares uh, so that was good um, 
I, I always learn a little bit, always observe, try to observe as much as I can and uh, try to try to make changes um, and, and try different things. I didn't try too many different things this year because I only snared for a couple weeks in March. Um, you know, I, January I was getting ready for the Alaska trip and then most of February was the Alaska trip. And so by the time I got back, I, I basically just had a couple, two, three weeks to, to do that sort of window um, to, to run that under ice line. So um, didn't really set the world on fire, but I had a lot of fun. And, uh, and that's really, that's, that's what it's all about right now. Um, the beaver prices, uh, there is some demand. The, the better beaver especially seem to be selling. So there's a bit of a market. Uh, it was, the fur harvesters auction did not sell a large percentage of the beaver at, at their, their online auction. Uh, if you, if you did not hear last week's episode, you can go back and tune into that just to get a little update on that auction. But, uh, since then, I've actually heard from uh, from a guy, a fur buyer, that um, has actually found a pretty decent market for beaver. So there's there's markets here, and actually, too, um, uh, there's a guy that that I've been sending some beavers to, as well as there's there's a guy that uh, someone who traps up here, not too far from me, has uh, has heard from, um, sending sending them some beaver pelts to the Midwest somewhere. So there's, you know, there's there's a few buyers here and there, and especially right now, not a lot of people out trapping. Uh, it just takes finding the right buyer because a lot of times they have issues. You know, they can have issues finding the finding the right pelts that they're looking for as well. Without a, with a lot of people not out trapping, and with difficulties the difficulties with the auction too. I mean. Um, it's sometimes it's difficult to bid sight unseen when you can't actually go to an auction or or just uh, people that that don't happen to buy buy the fur from the auctions um, they and they still need pelts there's only a limited number of places they can actually that you can find those so so yeah it I mean it's it's crazy sometimes you can go from not thinking you you don't have a, a place to sell a pelt and all of a sudden, boom! You know there was a guy that comes up here every spring, and and he puts up big numbers of beaver. He takes it seriously, works hard, and and uh, he goes hard for a couple weeks, and usually catches uh, two, three hundred beavers, sometimes three, four hundred. And he wasn't going to come up because of the the prices, and all of a sudden found a market, and he's he'll be up next week. So that'll be good. I I hope to go out with him. Um, on the line, maybe help them lug beavers up banks, and uh, learn learn more. It's always a learning experience um, going with someone that sets that many traps and catches that many animals, and it's usually fun. You, you usually spend a lot of time talking trapping. So, um, for me, I I did uh, just start. I I went out yesterday and set uh, set a few traps. I think I set seven or eight beaver traps. And my deal, you know, I, we have lots of beaver here. I'm not trapping to make money. I know I'm not going to make money at it. Um, but in order to cover the gas money and to leave enough time for other things that I have to get done around here, it it only makes sense to trap relatively close to home. So I didn't go very far. I maybe put uh, 15 miles on the truck uh, round trip, maybe, maybe 20 actually tops. But I... I went around to, to several places and uh, about half of the places I went to were still frozen that I drove by were still frozen and, and wasn't really a chance to get at the beaver. Um, or, you know, a lot of times this time of year, you'll see, uh, you can actually see like a beaver house from the road, but if it's more than like a hundred yards of frozen ice around it, uh, those beavers probably aren't going to come out. If they have to swim, a long distance before they can find open water. They're just, they're staying there just like it's winter. Um, as it starts to open up and they can get up out of, they, they can, you know, see open water and they can reach it with within reasonable travel distance. They'll, they'll pop up and, and they'll come out and, and move around quite a bit. So it was like maybe 50, 50 chance of, of getting on those beavers. Um, the water fluctuates like the river fluctuates so vastly this time of year so that's that's another thing you got to deal with as well but but yeah I went out and so two days ago I had a, a, a place where 
I saw a beaver, and this is one of those places where every year this is a problem location, and the town just is constantly dealing with these beavers that are. Uh, it's usually one beaver. It's a very small location. It's a it's a culvert that's probably three feet diameter, and it's about a hundred yards from uh, a side channel of the the main river. And of course, the river is just loaded with beavers. Nobody's trapping them. I mean, I don't know. I I might have caught 20 of them out of there this year, but uh, there's just up and down river. There's places you can't get to, and they're just loaded, loaded with beaver. There's hundreds of them within, you know, probably uh, a 15 mile uh, ri- stretch of river. And so, in in you know, you're you're talking not just not just that main river, but there's all kinds of sloughs and backwaters and side channels and I, I mean and, and there's beaver just it, if there's not beaver there's old abandoned washed out dams and old lodges I mean they're just the, the beaver are everywhere that there's they can possibly find food and there's little tributaries that come up from the river uh, or flow into the river but the beaver will come up from the river and go sit you know set up shop in those as well so they're just everywhere it's crawling with beaver um, and so in this particular location, uh, it, there's always a beaver there and it doesn't matter if it gets trapped, uh, the following spring or fall, uh, there inevitably will be a beaver that shows up there, plugs a culvert, um, sets up a little, little den, uh, bank, uh, den in the bank and, uh, and causes hell for the town that's been, you know, going twice a week and cleaning out the culvert and, and keeping the road from washing out. Um, this is a quarter mile from my house, so it's really super convenient. And I was coming home the other day, two nights ago, and uh, I saw the beaver. I, I, it was just getting dark, and I saw him run across uh, on the edge of the water and kind of through the trees. And so I thought, ah, cool. I'll go. I'll go set up, uh, set a trap for him tomorrow. So yesterday I got. I kind of got things together and, um, you know, pulled out. I I had uh, I got some TS-85s from Cots Bros and had those all painted up and, and ready to go. Had all my drowning rigs, uh, slide wires and locks and everything set up. Got uh, got my, my stakes and my rock bags, burlap bags and everything else. Um, and, and, of course, a few 330s and all the associated gear, and I went out. So I went and pulled up to this spot where this beaver, where I'd seen this beaver the night before, and sure enough, there he was swimming in this. It's kind of like a a ditch on the side of the road, really. It's not much of anything. It's it's you know maybe three feet deep, three four feet deep, um, and oh, it doesn't run much more than about a hundred feet, if that, um, where a beaver can actually you know swim around in, and uh, at as the beaver kind of plugs culvert, that area gets expands a little bit, and he was just there, and he really didn't have anywhere to go, um, so he just kind of swam back and forth, and he was looking at me. He saw I was there, and I'm like, oh, great. So, you know, if I easily could have shot him if that were legal. It's not legal here, and so I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna set a trap for him. I'll set a couple traps, and I watched him, and he finally got a little nervous uh, when I shut the truck off. And he dove, and I just watched where, you know, kind of where he swam right through. It wasn't really much of a channel, but it was pretty obvious where he went. And um, I thought, all right, there. He just, the beaver just showed me right where to set my 330. And so I did. I, I set the 330 up uh, pretty quick, put a couple of little guide sticks, wired it to, uh, to uh, an alder, and I grabbed another 330, and I saw another spot where there was kind of a little, there's a little tributary that was coming into that ditch, and it was just an opening just about the size of a 330, and there was a log on the surface of the water, so just a perfect spot where beaver would have to dive to get through. And so I got a 330, and I went over there, and I'm setting it in, and I was getting it stabilized, and all of a sudden I hear, and I look up to where I set my 330, and the sticks were shaking, and the brush was shaking, and I caught that beaver. That that trap hadn't set for more than maybe five minutes. 
<laughs> so that's the quickest. I, you know, I was really nervous that, uh, or I was thinking, man, I'm coming up here. The beaver sees me. I just spooked him. What are the odds? And now I'm not going to get this beaver for at least a couple days. He's going to be spooked. Nope. He just, he had, when he saw me, he'd swim, he dove and he went into under the bank somewhere where he'd had a little den or something. And then I went, I set, made that set and I went out on the other side of him and went to make the other set and he must have just come right out of his den and took off where he'd just come from and pop there he was so that was a, a pretty quick catch um that was pretty awesome <laughs> um that's that was a i've heard of guys doing that i've, I've actually you know you hear him tell stories about watching a beaver uh, swim into their trap and but i'd never done it before so that was kind of cool um then i went down and i made some sets um on one big stream that flows into the main river and a couple sets along the river. Those were the TS-85s with uh, just a, a piece of uh, of aspen pounded in uh, on the bank and some lure. Um, beaver really come to lure good this time of year. And so I, I made those sets. And then... Uh, I I had driven by a spot along the road and there was a dam there that was right by the road and uh, beaver kind of flooded some timber. It wasn't a traditional place where you usually see a beaver dam, but I thought, well, geez, you know, I couldn't tell, you know, if it was just signed from the previous fall and the beaver had died, but it it was, or, or had been trapped out or anything, but it was a really small house. It was a pretty small dam. There wasn't much there, but I thought, what the heck, I'm here. It was a quarter mile from one of my other sets. So I I grabbed a couple 330s. I could see a, I could see a couple of spots where um, the beaver had been traveling uh, from the house over to... There was ice all around the house. I didn't go to the house, but they'd been traveling to the dam where there was open water uh, around the dam. And so I, I, uh, I went over there, and I, I started making a set, and... And uh, as inevitably in rural northern Maine, uh, a pickup drove by and stopped. And I thought, oh, great. Okay, well, I wonder who this is. And I figured they'd just look over and keep on going. And um, nope, he stopped and he stayed there. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe it's another trapper. I don't know. Okay, well, I just, so I got out of the, I got out of the water and I thought I'll just walk over and talk to him, see what's going on and let him know what I'm doing. And, uh, I I went up to the road and and he says yeah he says I just wanted to see what you're doing I this is I own this land and uh, of course and, you know we're not we don't need a landowner permission to uh, to trap beaver and this was right along the road right away so I you know I w- didn't need permission or anything um, but you know if someone doesn't want you there I obviously I would have pulled my traps and I said well I said yeah I was just um, setting I thought maybe I'd try to catch a couple of these beavers and but if you don't want me to I I I'll I won't trap it. Oh jeez, he said don't do that. He said, "Oh man." He says and, and this is the story story of a beaver trapper's life in northern Maine that um, every landowner just hates him. And he says, "I bought this land 15 years ago and uh there used to be some really good timber on it and you know, he cuts wood and uh he said uh he said the beavers have destroyed it. They flooded they flooded all the way back along this little trickle and uh, just just destroyed a whole bunch of timberland. He said, get them all. Get, catch as many as you want. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm not really sure how, how much is here, but uh, I'll give it a shot and uh, I'll set a couple traps and we'll see. Uh, we'll find out in the next couple of days if anything's here. So so that was good. Um, and then... Uh, you know, of course, he he's like, oh, if you want to go back in the woods, there's a bunch more. Is nah, I, I don't go very far. Um, <laughs> this is, this is not an endeavor. Uh, you know, his he said his dad used to trap and um, used to be beavers used to be worth money back then, but uh, but you know, it's not an endeavor where you want to spend half a day walking through the woods to to get to a, a beaver lodge and back. Um, you got to pretty much hit it and go. And so uh, I set those, and then I went to a spot uh, on another road not far from there <clears throat> where, uh, actually I did, I went to another place that was kind of out of the way, but there was no sign, so I decided I didn't want to drive all the way there to check traps. And then I went to another spot where uh, it just was a an area that there's a culvert, again, it's constant trouble for the town. It's a, it's, this is in a different town just next door. And they constantly have issues with that, and and I could see right before I got there, 
As I was pulling up, there was piles of sticks and mud on the side of the culvert where the guys from the, that work for the town were, for the road department, were there and just cleaning out that culvert you know, over the past, probably the past week or two. And uh, <clears throat> so it, it was being plugged. And I hadn't really seen much there last fall, but it, there was just, a, a real, again, a small beaver hut there. And uh, it was one of those swamp beavers that was living in cattails and, and didn't even have any visible feed pile, really. Um, that was covered in ice, and there's only two open areas. There was an area right by the culvert where the beaver had been coming out and plugging up the culvert. And then there was an area uh, <clears throat> sort of up the hill a little ways, um, kind of, well, it was on the edge of where the, the land kind of starts to rise uh along the road and there's a little it's a little more upland and it was you know had some some drier ground it was growing some aspen and uh, ash and some other other species and you could I could see that that the water was open going and there was some trickles you know the snow melt that was coming down into the beaver foliage and that that had the water the ice uh, opened up there and so I walked over, and there was one channel. Um, there was one obvious channel, and you could see where a beaver had been coming up uh, to uh, to feed, you know, up on up on dry ground, and and uh, get some take advantage of of those uh, tasty trees after having probably eaten cattail roots all winter long. And so uh, there was just a channel that was just the size of a 330. It was just perfect, and I made the set there couple of subtle small guide sticks um, a couple a stick to stabilize the trap wired it up and uh, went on my way and so I went back uh, this morning I went back and checked traps and uh, I I had reset the the five minute set I had reset that one and and there's nothing there so I, I have a feeling that that's not going to result in a ca- another catch unless a beaver comes another beaver comes up from the river uh, incidentally, I, I skinned that beaver out when I got him home and he was all scarred up. I'm looking at him at his pelt right now, just all scarred up and not a bit of fat on him. Uh, the beavers I've been, you know, all winter long and fall, lots of nice fat beavers, but this guy was in rough shape. So, uh, I figured he'd been kicked out of somewhere. He'd been fighting with some other beavers and ended up in that ditch. That was kind of, it's kind of the low man on the totem pole gets that spot. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, anyway, he, I didn't get another one there. I, I may in another, in a couple of days, we'll see. Then I, I went to the spots on the one major stream and, you know, the water fluctuates a lot here, but I made that set yesterday about two o'clock in the afternoon and the TS-85 was under, oh, six inches of water. And I went back this morning and it was a foot and a half out of the water on dry land just amazing how fast the water drops of course we had a bunch of rain about a maybe a week ago and uh, that stopped and it's been really cold and the snow melt has been really slow and steady and so uh, the water's dropping so of course you know I just moved that down my slide wire remade the set put a you know change blocking up a little bit and just kind of dug out a, a new trap bed there and uh, and reset it. And I went by and I went to the river and I had to do the same thing on the big river on my two sets there. They were both in the dry from, you know, I'd set them 3 o'clock that afternoon, 3, 4 o'clock. So uh, the water drops fast. So it'll be interesting to see when I go back tomorrow if they've dropped again or if that's kind of slowing down. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just have to see. Um, I went to the landowner spot on the side of the road. Where, where I'd run into him and I'd set those I'd set two 330s there and there was a small beaver I caught, had a small beaver in that one of those 330s so uh, there was something there I wonder if if there's going to be another beaver or two there uh, there I'm kind of surprised to catch such a small beaver that far away um, from from the house uh, over by the dam so I don't know if that's one that got kicked out I I, I really don't know that that's a case, you know, guys drive by there and it's kind of out of the way, but it's, a, you know, it's a paved road. There's probably a lot of illegal, a lot of people shooting at beavers there. Um, there's a good chance of it anyway, you know. Um, 
especially with the you know flooding the road and stuff. So there there's uh, there's a possibility there, but who knows? Maybe maybe I'll come back. I'll go back tomorrow or the next day and and have another beaver there. Um, the spot where uh, the town had been having issues, um, that that last spot that I'd set up, where I'd set that one three thirty, where the beaver was coming up on land, I had a nice big beaver there. So, so I had a couple more, um, three beavers in I guess seven or eight traps. So that's kind of you know if the, it's fun, it's fun. Uh, I'm not going to go further. I, there's a spot by a couple spots by town that I may go. Uh, I'd have to have to check them every day based because our laws states um <clears throat> if you're within a built-up section of town you you within i think uh, half a mile of the built-up section of town you have to check daily which i don't really like it's kind of uh you know driving 15 miles more um for a chance at catching one or two beavers uh, every day uh, i don't know but um I, I don't know, I may get the itch. I may go and go and set those up for at least for a couple nights just to, to see what I catch. Um but yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of the way I've been doing it. I'm I'm not going crazy. I'm not running a big trap line. I'm just enjoying myself, enjoying the weather, learning a little bit, uh hopefully helping the town out a little bit. The town's out uh, uh taking care of a few problem beaver, uh meat meat and landowners, uh and letting them know I'm, I'm trapping here and there, and who knows, and, and and you know, gaining experience, and maybe beaver prices come back to twenty-five, thirty-dollar average uh, in in the sometime in the future, and uh, and I'd be pretty well set up to to take advantage of that. I hope so. Um, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my trap line here. Uh, probably you know the season goes for another eleven, twelve days probably won't trap the whole time but eh, maybe I will more likely I'll go help out you know this other guy and and uh, run go along his line and maybe trap with him a little bit help him skin a few beavers and and have fun Um, but yeah good good time of year to be trapping boy it really is awesome you do it it is a little bit you got to watch it because the beaver the pelts uh, seems like about a, a week of open water and the pelts are really start to decline considerably in quality so uh this just as the ice is melting and they're coming out is is the time to get them for as far as pelt quality and um they certainly are easy to catch right now so that's uh that's a lot of fun also cut some back straps off those beavers so you know uh you know take advantage of that as well have uh eat some beaver meat and uh and uh add a little variety to the diet here while we're at home doing a lot of cooking, social distancing. So that's a little update on my trap line. That went quite a while. Uh, I So I, I just wanted to give you a little overview uh, coming up uh, for the podcast. Uh, it's kind of a slow time of year. So, um, you know, things are, I, I got a lot of other stuff going on too and uh, not necessarily getting get flooded with emails and questions and all that sort of thing, but um, it's a good chance to get caught up on projects and uh, get into some things that I that I wanted to get into. So um, we've got Tyler Selden uh, coming on the, the show here uh, at some point, probably either next week or the week after. Got more from Nathan in Minnesota. Uh, we talked a lot of trapping uh, with Nathan, and I've got a few more of those uh, interview segments to play. Got a couple other guys on my hit list that I I would like to get on the show, so uh, I haven't contacted them yet, but I think I'm going to uh, get into that uh, coming up. Uh, I want to talk more about Onyx maps. Um, may try to get somebody from Onyx on the show to uh, to just talk about the product and uh, answer answer any questions we might have about using it on the trap line and and uh, go over some details and stuff. I think that'd be that'd be good. And then uh, the book, the Walter Arnold book, I'm I'm completed the uh, m- vast majority of it. I'm actually now working on the formatting. And so that, you know, days we get enough beautiful sunny days like today, that's not going to go very quick because I I didn't I don't work on it on nice days. But, you know, get a get a rainy day and and uh, get some time 
and uh, I work on it sometimes in the evenings I'll plug away a little bit but I I, I gotta get through the formatting and then uh, it will not be long so I'm going to be asking you uh, for your interest in in buying that book uh, and for your support it was a lot of work it was a big project and I think you guys are really gonna enjoy it it's gonna be a big book it's gonna be well I haven't decided completely all that's gonna stay in uh, I gotta I gotta go over some some details and see what it's gonna look like but if it's what I want it to be right now it's gonna be over 300 pages um, and just all kinds of awesome trapping history and and trapping information so uh, that's exciting and then uh, one uh, a listener to the podcast uh, from Virginia uh, Philip or Philip I can't remember. I don't know how to pronounce your name, but I know you'll correct me on that, I hope. Um, but a new trapper from Virginia, and he um, actually is an artist. And so we've been talking about doing a shirt. Uh, I know I I love Martin and Fisher. Um, obsessed with trapping Wolverine. Uh, I just, I like Mustelids. And uh, he just so happens to, to be a big Mustelid guy as well. And I know a number of you guys uh, that listen to the show think, you know, Martin and Fisher, all the Mustellas are just the coolest things on earth. I mean, of all the things we trap, they're, they're just, they're really neat critters. And so we're talking about doing a, uh, a Mustella t-shirt, a Trapping Today t-shirt. Um, I know a lot of people have asked about shirts in the past, and I've never really gotten around to doing it. Uh, part of the reason was I didn't really... Um, go through the effort of trying to find an artist um, or someone to do the design but uh, somebody offered so uh, we're gonna we're working on that right now um, let me know if you're interested and I will uh, keep you in mind and uh, for sure there will be more we'll be talking about that more coming up um, so with all that I wanted to finish this episode by reading you a little section of a book and I wanted just to give a little bit of an introduction uh, about you know how I came about this I of course I'm obsessed with Alaska yeah especially after having been there um, that that didn't help any uh, to to slow down my uh, my obsession with with the place it just kind of uh, solidified all the things I thought were so great about Alaska and trapping in Alaska but um, I've I've been going through so many different Alaska trapping uh, and overall Alaska books lately, and I cannot keep up. Uh, the The stack of books that I need to read is uh, is growing continually, and I'm even in this COVID nineteen era, I am not catching up um, as quickly as I need to. So uh, anyway, this is one that I did finish recently. It's called Jim Reardon's Alaska, and Jim Reardon is a really interesting cat. Um, he's actually he passed away uh, in 2017, but he's a guy that I really would have liked to meet and and sit down and have a conversation with. Just a really interesting guy. He was um, a wildlife biologist. He was a fisheries biologist. And he actually went to college at the University of Maine, where I went to school, and then he moved to Alaska. And he he actually taught uh, in the wildlife program, wildlife biology program at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He went to work for Alaska Fish and Game, and then he uh, became a full-time outdoor writer. I mean, all the things that I enjoy... <laughs> This guy lived it, um, and so so he had a really interesting life, and and he's really into big game hunting and um, fishing and just the overall outdoor stuff. He ended up living most of his life in Homer, Alaska. Um, he was there for for a very long time, built a house, um, and supported his family for a lot of years just writing. And so Jim is responsible for books like Sam O. White, Alaskan. Um, you remember me talking about that book uh, quite a few episodes back in the podcast. He uh, wrote the Sydney Huntington book, Shadows on the Koyukuk, another awesome book. Um, one that I have not uh, read yet. He wrote the uh, Frank Glazier book, Alaska's Wolfman. Uh, pretty incredible book. I've heard a lot of great things about it sitting on my shelf in my to-read stack. Um, so so he, he has a long list of books that he's written 
uh, and not just outdoors, uh, but also a few Alaska military, like Kastner's Cutthroats, talks about um, some some military guys from up, up there in Alaska. Um, so a really good, gifted, talented writer, really interesting guy. And uh, he, he had uh, a lot of great observations. Um, I want to read just a little bit of his obituary and then what I want to do is is read a section of of this book Jim Reardon's Alaska um, that that really that I really enjoyed so writer photographer editor professor biologist outdoorsman scholar veteran Alaskan and family man in the history of Alaska's post-world war ii generation that came into the country and settled the state Jim Douglas Reardon exemplified the breed Wicked smart, funny, personable, and handsome right down to his neatly clipped brush mustache. He stood as an example in the arts, humanities, and sciences. On February 18, at the age of 91, surrounded, and this was 2017, surrounded by family, one of Homer's most prolific writers died at South Peninsula Hospital. He was a man's man, an outdoorsman, but he was also a staunch family man too, said Homer pioneer Ray Kranich. Homer writer Tom Kizia, who picked Reardon's brain about Alaska hunting for his book, Pilgrim's Wilderness, called Reardon a bedrock of our literary community. The generation of Alaska writers who came up after Jim looked up to him for his deep experience and knowledge of his subject, as well as for his work ethic and narrative skill, Kizia said. Born April 1925 in California, he finished high school at the age of 17, enlisted March 1943 in the U.S. Navy, Father taught agriculture at his high school. Reardon served on the USS Loverling during World War II, doing destroyer escort in the Pacific Ocean in the Gilbert and Marshall Islands. Um, Reardon and a boyhood friend had dreamed of coming to Alaska. He would be a cowboy and his friend a bush pilot. After the war, he finished a bachelor of science degree at Oregon State College. Uh, while a junior, he got his chance to come to Alaska working a summer job in 1947 in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a fishing patrol agent in Chignik in the Alaska Peninsula. I got the greatest job anyone could possibly have, Reardon told the Homer News in 2010. Um, on a stop in Seldovia, he saw his first view of Homer across Kachemak Bay, not dreaming at the time he would wind up here. In 1950, he earned a Master of Science degree from the University of Maine, Orono, where he had a teaching and research fellowship. There he saw a job announcement for the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He applied and got the job. With his first wife, Ursula, and their family, they drove up the Alaska Highway in a 1941 Buick. Reardon Subin became the chairman of the Department of Wildlife Management at UAF. He quit after finding teaching didn't suit him. I wasn't happy standing in front of a blackboard. I wanted to do things, he said. In July 1955, Reardon moved to Homer, with uncertain prospects but a dream, to be a freelance writer and a registered guide. He'd started writing in college. Like many new Homer arrivals, he kicked around at odd jobs, working at a uh, log company, um, building the White Alice site on Diamond Ridge, working as a clerk, uh, and so on. Um, one of the stores he worked at, uh, a guy told him about serving in the Alaska Scouts, the Home Defense Territorial Unit in World War II. That led to Kastner's Cutthroats, one of Reardon's more popular books, one that Homer writer Dana Stabenow uh, says she's hand-sold more than some of her own books. Reardon's gift as a writer came from meeting or learning about Alaska characters and then telling their story. On a trip up the Koyukuk River drainage, he met Andy Anderson, uh, that's another book that I didn't mention, um, Alaska Bush Pilot, um, that, that Reardon wrote. Uh, Ween Air Pilot. Anderson's story became part of Ala Arctic Bush Pilots. An encounter with another uh, interior Alaska legend, Sidney Huntington, led to Shadows on the Koyukuk by Huntington, as told Reardon. Anchorage outdoors writer Craig Medford called that book one every Alaskan should read, and I think every trapper should read. It's an awesome book. It wouldn't have been that what it was without Jim's selfless contributions. He did a lot of the work. I never heard him claim any of the credit. That was Jim. We could use a lot more like him now, Medrud said in an email. Medrud said Reardon was like another big game guide writer and professor, Chuck Keem, who was Medrud's journalism professor at UAF. He was part of an old generation who didn't just talk about things, they did things. There were there are too many now who think writers sit in an office somewhere and write. They don't. They get out and live life and learn things. 
They were men who knew a lot and shared a lot. After statehood in 1959, Reardon got a job as assistant area biologist with the new Alaska Department of Fish and Game, eventually becoming area biologist and overseeing commercial fisheries management. He later served on the Alaska Board of Fish and the Alaska Board of Game. In 1970, President Gerald Ford appointed him to the National Advisory Committee on Oceans and Atmosphere. Um, and it goes on and on, but uh, a real interesting guy, a really great writer, and he told the stories of a lot of trappers. So this book, Jim Reardon's Alaska, is a collection of different stories that Jim wrote throughout his career. Um, a couple that stand out for uh, trappers, people interested in trapping, are um, one that I'm going to read to you, as well as uh, the one on Slim Carlson. And Slim was uh, an old hermit trapper who lived alone his entire life. He was uh, an immigrant from Sweden, and he uh, he, he moved to the Lake Minchumina area, uh, and uh, started out, uh, built a trap line there, trapped with dogs, and lived out there essentially his entire adult life, uh, and and trapped to make a living. Uh, that that is uh, chapter fourteen, voice, uh, or not voice in the wilderness. Sorry, that's on. That's another interesting chapter for for trappers. Um, it's called Fifty Seven Years Alone is Slim Carlson's story, chapter ten of this book. But I'm going to read you the. Uh, and toward the end of the book, uh, there is a chapter called, it's a story called A Home in the Wilderness. And this is because it's kind of one of those things, one of those stories that we all talk about, we read about, we hear about. And, and to me, we I can just never get enough of them. It's uh, about uh, a family that goes out to, to be in the wilderness of Alaska, uh, gets flown out into an area builds a cabin, sets up a trap line, um, and, and the whole works. So, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very much like a lot of stories, but it's also unique in its own way. So, uh, let's get into it. The Alaska wilderness is a natural home for bush rats. Those people who choose to live isolated in the bush and to provide for themselves from the bounty of forest and stream. Most people who arrive in Alaska from elsewhere to live as bushrats have romantic ideas about what it is like to live off the land, and most leave after a short trial. I've known a number of these who didn't survive, or I've known of a number of these who didn't survive. Sometimes their bodies were found, sometimes not. The state of Alaska has occasionally opened land to settlement, offering cabin sites in the wilderness. I'm aware of one offering in a remote off-road area in which 30 cabin sites were claimed. Within five years, only one of the people who'd signed up for the sites was still there. I've also known half a dozen successful bushrats, and have heard of many others, people like Wesley Halleck and his family. Wes permitted me to tape record and interview him for the story of his family's life in the wilderness, and it is told here in his voice. <coughs> I wanted to believe the freshly dug hole was a wolverine den, but somehow it didn't add up. There were no tracks in the fresh snow, yet some animal had recently been there, for there was no snow on the mound of new dirt that ringed the hole. I circled, looking for tracks, and found none. I approached the den from uphill, chambered a cartridge in my 270, feeling a bit foolish about being so cautious. Yet caution had become second nature because of where I was and because of our lifestyle. When I was 20 feet from the den, the silence was shattered by a loud woof, and I jumped in surprise. Moments later, a black animal bounded out of the den, headed downhill. It was a black bear, and I'd found his winter quarters just as he was settling in. The sound of my footsteps on the crunchy snow had caused him to bolt. Now my caution didn't seem so foolish. My rifle came up, the crosshairs of the scope settled behind his shoulder, and I fired. Tracks and a bloody trail led me to a nearby clearing where I found the bear dead. It was fat and superbly furred. Still, my sense of gain was touched with a feeling of regret feeling that all who love animals have when they bag their quarry. I killed because there was a purpose in the death of that black bear. My family needed the meat, the fat, the fur of this animal. I hesitated to dress the animal where it fell, knowing it would be difficult to keep twigs, mud, leaves, dead grass off the meat and fat. He weighed about 150 pounds. I'm over six feet tall and strong, so I shouldered the bear whole and packed him the mile or so to our cabin. By the time I got there, that little bear weighed about a ton. 
My wife, Cindy, who'd never eaten bear meat, made no comment when I dropped the animal in front of our cabin. But our four-year-old son, Russell, was soon rubbing the glossy fur and uh, watching as I skinned. The bear was covered with fat up to three inches thick, and Cindy filled pans with chunks of the white stuff. She cleaned, trimmed, and rinsed them in cold water and put them on the wood stove to simmer. For 12 hours, the fat bubbled over low heat with an occasional stirring, giving off a slight bacon-like aroma. It rendered into two gallons of amber oil and a hard residue, cracklings, that settled to the bottom of the kettle. Cindy strained the oil through a clean cloth into coffee cans, where it cooled and thickened into an opaque white product that uh, resembled vegetable shortening. I hung the quarters of meat from a pole outside the cabin, where it froze, and we ate the rich, fat-marbled meat all winter, alternating with caribou. What led me, at the age of 25, to abandon civilization and challenge the wilderness with my little family? I don't hate people, and I'm not hiding from something in my past. The answer is simple. Like many Americans today, I was seeking something. I wanted to live closer to nature. I wanted to control my life. I was looking for a challenge. I moved to Anchorage from Morrison, Colorado with my parents 18 years ago and quickly became came to love Alaska's wilderness. Cindy and I were married while I was on a trip visiting Colorado and I told her about my hope to live in the wilds. She grew up near Chicago and had little outdoor experience. In a canoe, Cindy, Baby Russell, and I explored many rivers that can easily be reached from Anchorage. I killed a moose and a lot of small game, which we ate and enjoyed. But where we lived in town, there were barking dogs, a sound of traffic, and roaring snow machines. When we explored with the canoe, others whizzed by us in powerboats. I had a compelling urge to move to some wilderness spot where we could be alone. After a couple years of exploring rivers, hiking, hunting, fishing, and running trap lines in areas I could reach from Anchorage, where I worked for a moving company, Cindy was convinced. Let's pick a spot and go build a cabin, she suggested. It took us a year and a half to decide where to go in the Alaska range and what kind of a cabin to build, and to accumulate the equipment and supplies we needed. After studying maps, books, and many reports, I flew into the country we had selected. It was a remote spot where there was game, trees I could, trees I could cut down for a log cabin, firewood, good water, and a place where I could trap. It was near a lake large enough to land on with a float plane. Our spot is at about 1,100 feet elevation in the Alaska Range in an area where timberline is at 2,000 feet. Moose live throughout the area. There are occasional caribou, bears, and small game, and it's fair fur country. In mid-July 1977, our chartered bush plane landed on the lake we'd chosen. The plane was so heavily loaded that water almost covered its floats. With us was Nick, our husky dog. We had a tent and camping gear, dried foods, tools, traps, summer and winter clothing, snowshoes, bedding, dishes, lanterns and fuel, insect repellent, first aid supplies, a 12-gauge Remington 870 pump, a Marlin 22 automatic, a, a, and a 270 and a 30-06, odd both Remington Model 700 with 4X scopes. For the cabin we planned to build, we had nails, clear plastic for windows, spikes for the logs, a stovepipe, hinges for the door. We splurged on a heavy plate steel airtight stove with a fire brick lining and detachable oven. I took a day, day to pitch our insect-proof umbrella tent where we would, could live while I built the cabin. We had about six weeks before the snow flew, and I wanted the cabin finished by then. Spruce at our elevation are sharply tapered and stunted. This dictated the size of our cabin, which turned out to be 12 by 14 feet. Sound small? Try moving and lifting green logs by yourself for a bigger cabin. Butts of our cabin logs averaged 9 to 12 inches in diameter. My goal was to fell a limb and peel 10 logs a day. I floated them in the lake to our cabin site, and in five working days I had 50 logs ready to start building. Using a shovel in a thickly timbered area, I stripped moss from the ground and packed gravel under the sill logs to retired rotting. For the first two years, the cabin floor was hard-packed dirt. In our third year, I flew in plywood and built a floor, a real luxury. Cindy gathered sphagnum moss for chinking. When I had a log notched and ready, I raised it and poked it tight with moss, knocked the blocks out, and let it settle, then spiked it into place. On a good day, I managed to build two complete rounds. I had the walls up in about 10 days. I worked 12 to 14 hours a day, and we soon realized that the flour, rice, powdered eggs, dried beans, and other foods we'd brought were too basic, for I lost about 25 pounds, and my endurance decreased during the six weeks I, it took to build the cabin. During that time, we lived partly on lake trout, 
which I caught from the lake with rod and reel. The Lakers were very cooperative, and we had all them we wanted to eat. To make tight-fitting quarters in the logs, I used a large half-round gouge chisel to cut where I scribed for my saddle notch, and I hacked the interior out with my double-bit axe. I cut the doors and windows out after the logs were all up. For the roof, I used 117 10-foot-long, 3-inch diameter spruce poles. Over the poles, I put a layer of 6-mil visqueen plastic. Then over that, we laid squares of insulating sphagnum moss. The roof drains well, holds in heat, and doesn't leak. The new cabin, with its sweet-smelling spruce logs, seemed luxurious after those weeks in the small tent. The cabin's dirt floor became drier and drier during the winter. Dust became a problem, so we sprinkled snow on the floor at night before going to bed. The snow melted and laid the dust. It was a fine art to know how much snow to used to make it damp but not muddy. While building the cabin we saw black, black bears and an occasional moose wandering the opposite shore of the lake. One day an old sow blackie with three cubs swam to our shore, the little ones bobbing along in her wake. I wasn't concerned for I was sure she would sense us and leave. As a precaution however we took Russell to the partly finished cabin and waited for her to realize we were there and to leave. That was a mistake. I should have instantly let the sow know we were there. We stood quietly, me with rifle in hand. We heard a twig snap. Knick raised his nose and hackles went up. The sow stepped out of the brush twenty yards away, saw us in the cabin and froze. For a moment I thought she was going to charge. She didn't know what to do. Knick started for her, but returned when I yelled. The sow turned and sent her cubs up a tree. She was so close that I fired around over her head. She ignored it and, to my relief, went up the tree with the cubs. We got out of sight, and finally the sow came down and started snooping. I was glad when we'd taken precautions uh, to leave no food scraps anywhere. We had even buried fish cleanings in the lake bottom, so there was no scent. After she walked around, uh, walked through camp and satisfied herself there was no danger, she called her cubs and they left. I had to hand-rip boards for the cabin door because the spiral grain spruce in the area will not split straight. As I laboriously sawed, I'd have paid $50 for a simple board. Finally, the door and windows were done, and the stove was installed. I made three-legged stools from log slabs using brace and bit to make the leg holes. Firewood was my next concern. There were plenty of dead spruce near the lake, and I cut what we needed and floated it to the cabin. Our cabin is snug and warm. The heavy stove holds heat well, and it will burn all night with a couple good chunks of firewood. In three years, I doubt we've burned more than three cords of wood a winter. Cindy keeps a sourdough pot going and bakes bread, cake, cookies every five days or so. She and Russell pick wild cranberries, rose hips, and blueberries. The cranberries and rose hips keep without special care, and she freezes the blueberries when the weather permits. By mid-October, our entire outdoors is a freezer. The first year, I started hunting meat in September, making long hikes from the cabin, getting acquainted with the area. I wasted a lot of time because I didn't know local places most frequented by big game, but I learned quickly. <clears throat> One day, a bull moose stepped out from the timber, a rock's throw from the cabin. The season was open, and I ran for my rifle. By the time I got to it and returned, the moose was gone. In October, I was edgy because I hadn't killed any big game, and we badly needed meat. We'd killed a few spruce grouse, and during the September migration, I'd shot many mallards and scop and widgeon that stopped on the lake. They were fat and delicious. Moose season closed, and I just had to get some caribou. I sat by the lake one quiet morning, rifle across my lap, and glassed a nearby ridge. After days of watching that ridge without seeing anything, it came as a jolt when I spotted a herd of eight or nine caribou. I slipped off on my packboard and headed out. The caribou were traveling. They would grab a bite and move on in their seemingly slow walk. I was lean and tough, but it took an hour for me to get where I expected to intercept them. I climbed higher and circled until I spotted two small herds bedded down. They were well out of range. I had to walk in sight of one herd while approaching the other. Surprisingly, I moved within easy range without the animals spooking. I shot a dry cow and the others in that herd left. I ran to the top of the ridge and found the second herd still bedded, picked a young bull and shot him behind the ear. He slumped in his bed and the rest of the herd wasn't even disturbed until a fidgety cow smelled the fresh blood. Then all of them left. A few days later, I shot the black bear at his den. Caribou, bear, ducks, grouse, and ptarmigan fed us through the first winter. With meat to eat, my weight and endurance immediately increased. 
Since then, I've killed a bull moose each fall. The farthest I've had to pack a moose was about a mile. We now have our canoe at the cabin, and I can pack a moose anywhere to the shore of the lake and paddle it home. I've also killed caribou early in the fall before it was cold enough to freeze. I cut it into strips, salt and pepper it liberally, and air dry it into jerky, which I like to eat when on the trail. I had two dozen traps that first winter. I had to keep moving them, for at first I didn't know where the fur was. Like most North Country trappers, I fought the weather. I would set traps, and it would rain and freeze the traps, so I'd have to reset them. Or a heavy snowfall would bury traps I had set in the open, or it would bury the cubbies, shelters in which I had set some traps. I'd never trapped Martin, and I had to learn their habits. I was delighted to learn that Martin in our area are very dark, large, dark, and finely furred. I started to trap Martin with a basic ground set under a tree. Since then, I've gone to various pole sets and have used conibear traps. Martin are full of curiosity and will investigate a ptarmigan wing swinging on a string in the wind near a trap, or the various scents I use. During the winter, I found lynx tracks in the snow along riverbank. I set a pair of number four traps in a natural cubby and some driftwood and willows. They went untouched for three weeks. Then one day they held a wolverine. For a 30-pound animal, he had a very deep growl and was simply ferocious. He lunged at me with a roar when I neared. My hair stood on end and I'm sh sure my eyes looked like saucers. I dropped him with the 22. Since then, I've heard of trappers who wade in with a, cub to finish, uh, a club to finish the wolverine. They can have it. I prefer the 22. I hand-sawed most of my fur-stretching boards and took great care with my furs. That first winter, I caught 38 marten, a wolverine, and several beautiful red foxes, which stepped into number four traps I set next to my ridgetop caribou kill gut piles. I've since caught more fur each winter. In order to trap more efficiently, I cut about 30 miles of trail in three 10-mile loops from our cabin. I use snowshoes, although most commercial trappers in Alaska use snow machines or even airplanes. Somehow I don't like the idea of snow machines on a trap line. They're noisy even when they work well, and they can get you in trouble by taking a great distance and then quitting. With webs, I know that even if I'm slow, I can walk home. At times it is lonely on the trap line. I leave the cabin before dawn, walk at a good clip on snowshoes all day, and return after dark. I see a lot of interesting things. Where a horned owl has caught a rabbit, tracks of a passing wolf pack, a cow moose and her calf, signs of a river otter family. Our life is adventurous, I suppose, because we're totally on our own. There's no nearby doctor, no hospital, no drugstore. We can't run into a supermarket if we've forgotten something. We don't have a two-way radio to call for help. Some people think of adventure as a succession of narrow escapes. To me, that's poor planning. I take every precaution to avoid trouble. We've never had what I consider a close call. The greatest danger I face is crossing ice on a good-sized river and on large creeks. If I'm doubtful about a crossing, I carry a spruce pole. If the ice breaks, I can bridge the hole with the pole and pull myself out. I'm always prepared to shed my snowshoes in my pack quickly if I break through, and I carry matches in a waterproof safe so I can build a fire to dry out. I prefer constant cold once winter arrives. When it warms to above freezing, my snowy trails get soft, our meat starts to thaw, and ice crossings get tricky. During deep winter, when I'm busy trapping, Cindy reads the books she collects during the summers when we visit town. She cooks, does her housekeeping, and listens to our battery radio. Cabin fever has never been a problem. Sometimes we go for days without much talk, then suddenly we explore some subject in great depth. Though we know a lot about each other, it seems that we always learn more. We get along better in the wilderness than we do in town. During our first season, relatives in Anchorage became worried and sent a plane for us in March. We returned to town on that plane, and I sold the fur uh, I had trapped and got a temporary job to earn needed cash. By fall, we are back home in the wilderness. That has set the pattern of our lives. As a result of our living in isolation most of the year, Russell, now nine years old, has learned to think for himself, and he's unusually independent for his age. He watches my every move, and I'm careful to explain things that he finds difficult to understand. I have considered buying a small plane for travel to and from our cabin, but somehow that would change things. We want to live the in the wilderness like the Alaskan old-timers did. My great satisfaction often comes after a long, cold day on the trap line. Dark has fallen, and I slog along on squeaking, hissing snowshoes. There's a fresh-caught fur in my pack. 
Then I get a whiff of wood smoke, and through the dark spruces I see lantern light shining from the cabin's windows. That welcoming cabin, a tiny haven in the wilderness, a lonely pinpoint of warmth, with Cindy and Russell waiting, is to me true happiness. A note from Jim at the end of the story. Uh, I tape-recorded Wesley Halleck's story in Anchorage, where he and his family lived in a small apartment while briefly in town. Since that story was published, I've lost track of the Halleck family. I'd like to hear from Wes Halleck to learn how he and Cindy are doing. Are they still out there in the boondocks, or did they get their fill of it? How long did they last? When I interviewed him, I was impressed by the thoughtful and careful way he went about moving from Anchorage into the bush. He went prepared mentally, and with the right kind of equipment for safe and comfortable survival. I've often wondered about Russell Halleck, Wes and, Cindy's, uh, Wes and Cindy's son, who was nine years old in 1982. Does he still live with his parents, or has he chosen another way of life? I usually don't mention the names of bush rats because anonymity often goes with the lifestyle. Most people I've talked with or written about who live alone in the wilderness request that I not use their names, or at least change their names. Wes Halleck was an exception. The only request he made was that I not disclose the location of his chosen paradise, a request I have honored. Um, and this story appeared in Outdoor Life in January 1983, originally. So that's part of Jim Reardon's Alaska. I'll leave a link to uh, in, the dis- in the show notes um, to the book where you can pick it up a copy. It's a really good book. And I uh, always love to hear those Alaska trapline stories. So uh, anyway, hope you guys are all doing well. Um, and we will catch you in next week's episode.